Hey, let's uh, open our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 1 as uh, we enter into the third week here studying the Gospel of Mark. And uh, if you were here last week, you'll recall that we talked about the subject of repentance. Repentance, very important topic here uh, in uh, the Christian faith. Repentance literally means a change of mind resulting in a change of behavior. Uh, If we claim to be Christians, uh, there has to be a corresponding change in the way that we act, in the way that we live, in the way that we behave. Would you guys agree? That's true repentance, that, that we have a change of mind resulting in a true change of behavior. But for many Christians, this is a problem, isn't it? Because there's uh, there's a, a, a form of godliness that, that's so prevalent in the Christian church today that speaks about Christ as Lord and Savior, but that the behavior that takes place in the life of Monday through Saturday has nothing to do with the things that, that are boldly professed. Uh, you know, it reminds me of the, the, that cowboy poem. Maybe you've heard it uh, on reincarnation. You know, one cowboy talking to the other and asked the question, what is, what is reincarnation? The cowboy asked his friend. Well, it starts, as old pal told him, when your life comes to an end. They wash your face, they comb your hair, they clean your fingernails, and they put you in a padded box away from life's travails. Now the box in you goes into a hole that's been dug in the ground, and reincarnation starts in once you're planted neath that mound. Them clods melt down just like the box and you who is inside, and that's when you begin your transformation ride. And in a while, the grass will grow upon your rendered mound until someday upon that spot, a lonely flower is found. And then a horse may wander by and graze upon the flower that once was you. Thus has begun your vegetative bower. And now the flower that the horse done eat, along with the grass and other feed, makes bone and fat and muscle essentials to the steed. But there's a part that he can't use, and so it passes through, and there lies upon the ground this thing that once was you. Now, if perchance I should pass by and see this on the ground, I'll stop a while and I'll ponder at this object that I've found and I'll think about reincarnation and life and death and such and I'll come away concluding, well, you ain't changed all that much. (laughs) And, you know, the, the sad fact of Christianity is that there are those people, obviously we know reincarnation, it's a lie from Satan, it's not true, But the Christian faith is all about change. It's about transformation. It's about the Spirit of God indwelling your life and indwelling my life and causing us to be different people, new creatures in Christ. The sad truth about Christianity is, or or the Christian church, I should say, is that there's a lot of people who really ain't changed all that much. You know, and they profess that they've changed, but they really haven't. But here in the Gospel of Mark, right here in the the first verses of the opening of of chapter 1, what we're seeing is that people were changing. It was a dramatic thing. As a matter of fact, as we're going to see today, hundreds of thousands of people were coming out into the wilderness to be baptized by John. Over a thousand people a day were being baptized in the wilderness. His ministry spanning a year and a half. Uh, and, uh, and so a thousand people a day, it's estimated, 
were coming out into the wilderness, being baptized, and not just being baptized. As they're there, they're openly confessing their sins one to another. And it's just this constant stream the, the Bible talks about, and as we'll be looking at. And really, in short, a revival of sorts was breaking out here uh, in the, the opening verses, chapter 1, the Gospel of Mark. And what makes it more amazing is that all of this is taking place out in the wilderness. Totally flies in the face of modern church growth ideas. You know, if you want to grow a church, you know, you don't go out into some obscure place out in the wilderness. No, you want to get a prominent building on a prominent corner with a prominent sign, with a slick advertising campaign, and really get your message out there. No, all of this was happening Hundreds of thousands of people coming out and getting right with the Lord, and it's all taking place in the wilderness. Well, uh, today, uh, <laughs> we're going to look at, uh, I'm going to amend what I'm about to say here, but we're going to look at two men in the wilderness, basically through the text. We're going to look at, at John, and we're going to look at Jesus, right? Uh, John being the prophet of God, sent, uh, sent by the Lord uh, to proclaim the coming of, of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ being uh, God incarnate, God who became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And, and both of these men, as we read here uh, in these opening verses of chapter 1, they both have a wilderness experience. And there's something to be learned from both of them. Now I have good news and I have more good news. Okay, The good news is that uh, this is an hour and a half message. The really good news is that I'm breaking it in half. So I'm going to give you half of the message today, uh, and you can get half of the message next week, uh, which means we're really going to look at, at Jesus' role in the, in the wilderness next week. But today what we're going to do, we're going to focus on John the Baptist, and we're going to focus on his life out in the ministry. And basically, I want to answer the question, what was it? Why were so many people attracted to John out in the wilderness? And I, I think there's, there's a lot of answers we could give for that. I think the text kind of lends itself to, to three main answers that we can look at and glean from for our life, uh, that we can, we can uh, be strengthened from. And so the first thing I, I, I think the text clearly shows here is that people were attracted to John in the wilderness because that is where they met Jesus. That John was in the wilderness proclaiming Jesus Christ. The word wilderness there in your text uh, is, is a very interesting word. As a matter of fact, let's read through the text and then we'll come back and we'll kind of pick it apart verse by verse. We finished chapter 4 last week. We'll pick it up in context and read chapter 4 today. Uh, uh, let's go 4 to, uh, to 9. Uh, John came baptizing in the wilderness, Mark chapter 1, verse 4. John came baptizing in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Yum. Uh, verse 7. Uh, and he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and to loose. I indeed baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And it came to pass, verse 9, in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. We'll pick it up, leave off there. Uh, the word wilderness that we, that we read in, in verse 4 
literally translated this word, it means a lonely, uninhabited place. Uh, that's, that's the literal translation of the Greek word wilderness. Uh, and have you discovered that when you really want to have an encounter with Jesus, that that encounter typically play, takes place in a lonely, uninhabited place? Have you discovered that? And, and this can take many, many forms. Uh, you, can, you can have that metaphoric wilderness experience, me- metaphorical wilderness experience where you, know, you go through some huge trial in your life and you feel like you've been utterly forsaken. Uh, maybe, you know, you've lost a job or you've lost a loved one or you're going through some physical trial or some whatever it is and you're in this wilderness just feeling like you're just completely desolate and inevitably in those places in life that's when we hear God's voice the, the, the most clearly, isn't it? It's when we encounter the Lord most, most significantly. Or maybe it's a, it's a literal wilderness experience. Maybe you know, you've got so many distractions and the cares of the world and all of these things that are cramming in that you just can't, you just can't hear God's voice. And you take some time and you say, I'm just, I'm just going to get away. I'm going to get separated just so that I can focus on hearing the voice of the Lord. It's amazing to me in our day and age, there are so many distractions in life. Do you remember the good old days when you used to get in your car and not have, not have anybody bother you? You know, and now with cell phone and cellular technology, we get in the car and we get 50 bazillion phone calls. We get an email. We're texting somebody. We were driving down the road the other day. Some lady, she's swerving all over the place. And Pastor Cody's like, what is wrong with her? We pull up next to her and she's, she's like going crazy with her text messages, you know, and there, you know, all of these things that come in life, you know, we've got the television, we've got the radio, we've got, uh, you know, the text and the cellular and the email and all of this stuff just crowding in on us and the world is becoming more and more this busy, crowded place where you just, the voice of the Lord is just, it's just drowned out, right? I, I, when I worked at the fire department years ago, I had one guy, his name was John, and when we'd be in the day room, maybe, you know, after, after hours watching TV, and the commercial would come on, I'd grab the remote and hit the, hit the mute. With, look, no, every normal person does that, right? You don't want to listen to the commercial, I'd hit the mute. But he would freak out. He couldn't stand it. He's like he wanted the, the volume back on. And I quickly figured out the guy was tormented. And I'm not joking. He really, he just couldn't be alone with his thoughts. He couldn't stand silence. He always had to have something going on. He, did, he didn't want to be alone with his thoughts. He didn't want to give God one minute to speak to him. He wanted to have everything drown out. But for so many of us, we need those times of solitude. We need those times of, of separating ourselves to really, truly be able to hear the voice of the Lord. I'm reminded, maybe you are too, of the story in 1 Kings chapter 19. Um, refresh your memory. Remember, Elijah is out there and he's running from Jezebel. And, and so Elijah is running for his life and an angel of the Lord appears to Elijah and uh, he commands him to go out on the mountaintop to, to hear to God, to, to meet with God, to listen to God. And so Elijah goes out there and, and the text first says that first there's this great wind that comes and, and the text is quick to say God wasn't in the wind. And then it says there was this earthquake, you know, this 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 very visual, feeling, sensual thing. You know, your, your senses involved kind of thing. God wasn't in the earthquake. And then it says that there was a fire. 
a very dramatic kind of visual thing. No, God wasn't in the fire. And then it says God spoke to him in a still, small voice. And so often for us, for, for you and for me, I know that we need to have those times out in the wilderness where I can hear that still, small voice of the Lord. And I can actually connect with him. And I want you to notice something else that's significant about the wilderness. Uh, What's significant is where they were in the wilderness, where geographically they were. Because they, these people are, are drawn out into the wilderness, and geographically speaking, where they're at is in, in the Jordan River Valley. And this, this place, maybe you've been to, to Israel and, you, and you've seen it, but the Jordan River, the main part of it, is about 70 miles long. And it basically comes out of the Sea of Galilee, and it flows into the Dead Sea. And so uh, the, the river going through there, and it's just, you know, it's just this, this dark brown kind of murky sort of water. It, it's sort of, you know, just not this really remarkable thing. Um, but, but, you know, nevertheless, there it is, and it, and it represents this, this divide. It's about 20 miles west of Jordan, and this is exactly, precisely the place where when Israel had been wandering in the desert for 40 years, uh, and we don't have time to talk about it today, we're going to get into it next week, but that number 40 is very significant. But when, it, when Israel had, had uh, you know, separated themselves really from God uh, through disobedience, they'd kind of broken the covenant with him by failing to enter into the promised land by faith. They, they were destined then to wander in the desert for 40 years. And at the end of that 40 years, when God raised up this new generation that would now go into the promised land, where did it take place? Well, right here in the Jordan River Valley. And what would happen is that God would, would raise up this generation and God would raise up this man to lead this, this new generation, this man named Joshua. This, this, is, this is actually the name of Jesus in the original language, Yeshua. Uh, and, and Joshua being this type of Jesus Christ, uh, this example, this Old Testament example of Jesus Christ who would lead the people through the Jordan into the promised land. And that's exactly what's taking place here. And as this took place, <coughs> um, where God is working through Joshua and leading the people into the promised land, uh, as you read through that, you realize that the priests were the ones who led the way. That they carried the Ark of the Covenant, uh, this, this thing that, that, is the, that represents the presence of God. And there, carrying the Ark of the Covenant, the priests stepped into the Jordan River. And as they entered into the Jordan River, the waters were parted. They actually uh, bunched up in a heap, the text tells us. And the, and the Israelites were able to cross through the Jordan into the promised land. And here now what we have is John the Baptist, a descendant of the priestly line of Aaron. Uh, and uh, he's, he's there. He's a prophet of God. And he goes in and he steps in to, to the Jordan River. And he, he baptizes everyone who will come uh, to him into this new covenant of relationship with God. It's, it's this, this new thing that's taking place again, just as the Israelites went through the Jordan into the promised land. Now too, so we can enter in through the waters of baptism in Jordan into this relationship with God, into this, this new venture of faith with him through the step of baptism. Well, the second reason so many people were, were attracted to the wilderness 
is because John walked his talk in the wilderness. John practiced what he preached. And I don't know if you're like me, but there's nothing that bugs me worse than, a, than hypocrisy. Absolutely drives me crazy when you've got a hypocrite who's claiming one thing and living, you know, another. And, and all of us have times where we have hypocrisy in our lives. And I don't mean to be holier than thou and, and suggest that I don't have times when, when I'm a hypocrite, you know, when I put a, a Reliance Church sticker on my car and then I cut somebody off or whatever it is. You know, we have those times where we fail. But my point is, is that there's something very attractive about a person who walks the talk, isn't there? <clears throat> something very attractive about somebody who, who professes faith in Christ, who puts their money where their mouth is, and who, who just walks in this obedient relationship with the Lord. That's what we see with John. Look again at verse 6. It says there, Now John was clothed with camel's hair, and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts, and wild honey. What is up with that? That, that I mean, seriously, that's just plain weird. Well, <clears throat> turn to, uh, to Luke chapter 1, and let's take a look at what's up with that. Turn over uh, to, uh, to Luke chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 5. Whoops. We're going to figure out what the heck is going on with uh, the locusts and the, the honey and the camel's hair coat. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. There were, was in the days of Herod, the king of Judah, uh, the, uh, the, king, yeah, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. And so it was that while he was serving as priest before God, in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. It's estimated at this time there was like over 20,000 priests uh, there in, in the nation. And so, uh, you know, when the lot fell to you to, to go into the temple to burn, to burn incense, it, it would like maybe happen once in your life. This is his once-in-a-lifetime shot. Verse 10, And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Obviously, this is John the Baptist's father, and the prophecy about John the Baptist being born. Verse 15, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Verse 17, He will also go before him in the Spirit, and in the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to uh, uh, the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so here we see John the Baptist being uh, sent 
as a prophet, and he's coming in the spirit of Elijah the prophet, the text tells us. And Elijah was a prophet who God sent to the nation of Israel to call them to repentance. And that's exactly what John now is doing in the spirit of Elijah. He's going, calling the nation of Israel to repentance. Now, you don't have to turn there for time's sake, but if you want to jot down 2 Kings 1.8, 2 Kings 1.8 gives us a description of what Elijah kind of looked like. It said, says that Elijah was a hairy man who wore a leather belt around his waist, and obviously John the Baptist is identifying with him visually here. He's dressing in this, this coat of camel's hair to, to identify with Elijah the prophet. He's got the leather belt around his wife to identify himself with Elijah the prophet so that the people who are coming out to him will have this visual cue in mind. Yes, Elijah came preaching the repentance that we should repent and that's exactly John's message. That's what John is doing there. But the other reason there for John's simple uh, attire and for his crazy diet, uh, what we see here is that John's diet and his dress was a huge witness because everybody could see a lot of things very quickly from that. Number one, he wasn't looking to get rich. He wasn't looking to get nothing from nobody. He went out into the desert. He had only one agenda. He was there to preach Christ. He didn't need to be wined and dined. He wasn't looking to be wined and dined. He wasn't uh, doing anything except for telling the people of their need for Jesus Christ. You see, this is a huge, stark contrast to the religious leaders of the day. You see, the religious leaders of the day were very wicked. They were very greedy men. Um, We learned that they loved money, that they lived in luxurious homes, Uh, that they occupied positions of authority and often they abused their positions of authority and made merchandise of the people for their own advantage. You remember when Jesus went into the temple and he was overturning the tables, the money changers tables? These were these guys. These were the religious leaders who were, you know, hawking the stuff at the tables, who were taking advantage of guys when they're coming to change their money and, and ripping them off. And You know, these are the guys that are eating and drinking in the best places and occupying the best seats and the feasts and things like that. And these were the guys that made this huge show of their fine apparel, of the robes and stuff that they would wear. Now turn to Matthew chapter 6. I want to show you a contrast to that. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus going through the Sermon on the Mount, He has something to say about those that are looking to get rich and those that are trusting in money. Beginning there in in verse 24, here's what Jesus said. He says, no one can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and he'll love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so often what was happening with with these religious rulers is that they were looking to get rich. Their money was their God. They were greedy people. They, they really did not have the interest of being God's servants and God's vessels. And really, they saw the people as, as a means to, to benefit themselves rather than as, as people that had been entrusted to them that they had the responsibility to point to God. And that's the deal, is that, G, that John had a very drastically different ministry. He had a very drastically different approach. He was, he was not looking to get anything from anyone. He was just out in the desert telling people out in the wilderness, 
You need Jesus. You need Jesus. Let me just tell you about Jesus. We continue. Verse 25, Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they, Jesus asked? Which of you by worrying can add one cubic to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that, that even Solomon in all his glory, the richest man that ever lived, the wisest man that ever lived, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all of these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And this is what we see here with John, is that he's taking this to heart. I mean, think about that. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about what you're going to drink. And I immediately think of John the Baptist, eating locusts and wild honey is chasing sauce, I don't know, and wearing a coat of camel's hair. And the man is just the embodiment, the epitome of a guy that he's not worried about what he's going to eat. He's not worried about what he's going to wear. He's trusting in the Lord to provide for him. And for all of those hundreds of thousands that are flocking out into the desert, that is an incredibly attractive thing for them to see. I mean, just imagine that. Hundreds of thousands of people flocking into the desert to, to, to be baptized. It's, it's absolutely amazing. You know, um, and uh, forgive me, I forget what I've said first service and second service, but um, it's estimated that 500,000 people were baptized by John in the wilderness. That's a half a million people. I mean, if you sit down and do the math, like how long did that take? <laughs> I mean, we're talking, you know, if he was doing one every 30 seconds on an eight-hour shift, uh, the, he'd get 1,000 people a day done. Or maybe he took his time and he did one every minute. That's a 16-hour day. You know, for him, I mean, the guy must have been just pruned and waterlogged and he's out there, you know, dressed like this. And, and quite honestly, quite seriously, he walked the talk. And it's brilliantly amazing and it's something that everybody wants to be a part of when you see somebody practicing what they preach. You, you respect it. You, you want to hear what they have to say. You want to go to that person for counsel. And let me ask you a question. Are you practicing what you preach? Are you walking the talk? What kind of example are you setting? Are, are people, are, are they drawn to your behavior, to, to your Christ-likeness? Is that something, that, that, that some example that, that you're setting forth for the, for the people uh, that, that, you, that you're around? The people that you've been charged with to minister. The Bible says, to whom much is given, much is required. 
And all of us, I don't, I don't care if you're, in, if you're in ministry, position of ministry or not, uh, in terms of you know, the church ministry, all of us have a ministry before God. If you're a parent, you have a, a high holy calling from God. You have a, a fantastic ministry. And the thing is, is that we need to be those that walk the talk. Those that, that are these examples that are, that are set forth. And we need to be those that are characterized by being people, men and women, of faith. Uh, it, you know, it just, it absolutely amazes me. And, and I think I've, I've said this to you guys before, but you know, it bears repeating. It just watching the faith of, of Pastor Cody has been such an encouragement to me personally. That just, you know, as, as you know, starting a church is not an easy thing. And for Cody to come up and say, hey, I want to go with you. And I'm like, dude, don't, you know, because you got three, you got three kids to feed. And, and uh, you know, there's not going to be a paycheck for a long time. And what are you going to do? He's like, I don't, I don't know. And I don't care. God's called me to go. And it's just, and his faith gave me faith. And it was such a blessing for me this week just to watch, you know, now they're pregnant with their fourth kid, another girl. Uh, and, you know, estrogen ocean at the king house. And, um, and, you know, Cody's just faithfully working at the water district. It's a door that God opened for him. He's not getting rich, and he's serving at the church, and, and yet God's meeting his needs. I mean, he's got four kids, you know, under five. I mean, who does that, right? And, and God's just meeting this man's needs. He's a man that just walks by faith, and it's just, it's, you're drawn to it. You're like, that, I, I just love that. And I, and I am strengthened by seeing that. And, and this week, you know, uh, they, they did a little baby shower thing for Micah. And, and, and a bunch of girls got together from the church. And they, they did a, a makeover of the playroom. And Micah came in and she just burst into tears. She hated it. No, I'm kidding. She loved it. And it was just awesome. And I'm just sitting there thinking, and I, you know, trying not to look like I'm not crying. Um, but just thinking this... God's provision. And here this man just, this, this, you know, he didn't sit down and say, okay, well, no, wait a minute. How much can you pay me to see if I'm going to go? No, he's just like, God's calling me to go. I'm going to go. And, then, and there's something just very attractive and very appealing about those people that, that are walking their faith. And, and I, my, my hope for you guys, for us as a body, is that we'll be the kind of men and women that, that practice what we preach and that have a measure of faith that those that are children and, and our friends and the people that are in our lives, they can look at us and they can say, what they have is real. And, and, and I'm willing to go out into the wilderness to go out after what, what they've got because it's, it's the real deal. They're living out their faith. Well, the third reason that I think that the people were attracted to the wilderness, and I think this is the strongest reason in, in, in the text clearly shows it. It's that what John was doing out there in the wilderness, it was 100% totally all about Jesus Christ. It wasn't about a man. It was about Jesus. Uh, take a look at verses 7 and 8 again, back in, in Mark chapter 1. It says, and, and he preached, saying, there comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting. He says, I'm not worthy to stoop down and, and, and untie his sandal. 
And, you know, that's actually, the, there was the popular teaching at the time from the Jewish rabbis that a teacher could require just about anything of his followers except that they remove his sandals. As a matter of fact, let me read to you from the Babylonian Talmud. Uh, it says this, quote, All services which a slave does for his master, a pupil should do for his teacher, with the exception of undoing his shoes, end quote. You see, undoing somebody's shoes was was a task that w- that that nobody should be asked to do. It was such a lowly task that only the slaves should be asked to do that. And here's John's attitude. John's heart, John's attitude says, look, I'm not even worthy to be a slave to Jesus. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. And 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 you might think, you know, okay, well, that that's fine. Yeah, of course, you don't compare to Jesus. But let's just take a step back. Let's think about this for a minute. John's ministry is... Probably the biggest church there's ever been. I mean, he's got, like, he's got a half a million people in his church, really, when you think about it. I mean, he's out there in the wilderness and a half a million people coming out to be baptized by John. Do you think that maybe John has the temptation to start believing his own press clippings? You know, hey, you know what? I got, I got a pretty successful ministry here. I'm a, uh, have you met me? Because I'm a pretty big deal, you know? And, he, and, and you can see maybe that this attitude might creep into his heart. But, but no, Scripture records John as saying, I must decrease and he must increase. I'm not even worthy to untie a sandal. He pointed to Jesus Christ. And, you know, in, in Deuteronomy, in chapter 8, and actually all through Deuteronomy, there's just over and over again, the message is repeated by the Lord through Moses to his people, don't forget God. Don't forget God. Don't forget God. Don't forget God. Well, why would he say it over and over again? Because we have the tendency to forget God, right? And, and, and you know, it doesn't even have to be limited to ministry. I mean, you think about the pastor and he's got, you know, this huge mega church or whatever it is. And, oh, you know, you get caught up in your success. No, we're, we're all subject to this. You know, where maybe in my life and I'm building my, my business and in the early days, man, it's wilderness time. And I'm like, Lord, please help me, you know, here. And now I get maybe a few clients and things are starting to go and I start getting the staff and I start like kind of getting all proud and, and like, man, I, I got it all going on and forgetting along the way who gave it to me. Right? That's the constant temptation in our life. We're, we're raising our kids and it starts off, we're begging the Lord, God, give me wisdom with this kid. I'm going to kill this kid. I don't know what I'm going to do with this kid. And, and God just sort of does. And then we, we forget God. You know, things sort of get easy and we forget him there. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11, Moses warned the Israelites this. I think we may have it on, on the, the screens for you. He said, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today. And it's a long text. I urge you, write it down, read it, because several verses down, we don't have time to go through the whole thing, but several verses down, basically, the, the conversation starts going, hey, when you get successful, and you get houses, and you start acquiring wealth, and, and you get all of these things, don't forget God. And that's the whole point. And he's like, and if you do, God's going to judge you. God's God, the hammer's coming down. You can't forget God. But you know, sadly, many successful churches and ministries do this exact same thing. 
They forget Jesus somewhere along the way. As a matter of fact, just to prove my point last night, I got on Google and I Googled sermon titles of some of the largest churches in America. Churches, you know, big, huge Christian churches, like, you know, top 100 churches in the largest 100 churches in America. And I, and I just Googled some of the sermon titles that they're preaching, uh, their, their most recent sermon title. Let me share a few of them with you. Seven steps to living at your full potential. Here's another one. You are pre-programmed for victory. Here's another title. Become a better you. Or here's one. God wants you to be rich. I might get that one. I don't know. Uh, here's another one. Seven steps to improving your life. Right? And I'm sitting there reading these things. I go, okay, there's a common thread here. Are you catching it? You. Right? You. And, and it's, it's true, guys, that the gospel in America and most American churches, it's all about me, man. Just, just make it easy for me. Make it convenient for me. And, and you know, we talked about it last week. Jesus, you'd be a welcome addition to my kingdom. Uh, you can be the spare tire that hangs out in my trunk. And, and when I get a flat, I'll throw you on. And you'll get me to my next point. And just as soon as I get things back under control, it's back in the trunk. Jesus kind of thing. And, and, and this, this attitude kind of, it's persuasive and it's pervasive and it just sort of, it comes in. And I have noticed that so many churches and so many ministries, um, and, and my point isn't to bag on other churches, it's to encourage us to be who we should be in Christ, that we always need to be pointing to Jesus. In case you missed it, that's the point, pointing to Jesus, remembering Jesus, keeping Jesus first, keeping Jesus foremost. But I've noticed so many churches spend a lot of time and money pointing to everything other than Jesus, they're pointing to psychology, they're pointing to prosperity, they're pointing to personality, they're even pointing to their pastors. And you know, in some churches, their pastor's name is even their web domain. And, 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 and the, that's, that's, you know, it's all about, you know, so-and-so ministries or whatever it happens to be. And I, I just asked the question, where's Jesus? And it, this is scary stuff, guys, when you think about it. You read the book of Revelation in chapter 3, at the end of verse 1, and it goes through verse 3, I'm going to read it to you. It says, Jesus says this, he's speaking to the church in Sardis. He says, I know all, and I'll read it to you in the New Living Translation, I know all the things you do, and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Now wake up, strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is at the point of death. Your deeds are far from right in the sight of God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly and turn to me again. Unless you do, I will come upon you suddenly as an unexpected, as a thief. Guys, it's all about keeping Jesus first and foremost in everything that we do and constantly pointing to him. And John the Baptist, of all people, he knew the ugly side of religion firsthand. Because you remember, this guy, he was, he was, a, he was a priest kid, right? And, and there he's, he's raised in, in a priestly line, in a priestly home. 
uh, his, his own father being a priest, meaning that the kids he hung out with, that he, you know, going to soccer practice with so-and-so, and, you know, and there is his priest father as well, and he gets to see him and how he interacts with his son, or, hey, Dad, I'm having a sleepover at the Cohen's house tonight, and there, you know, he gets to see the mister. How's he act? How's he treating his wife? How's he treating his kids? And he gets to see behind the curtain. He gets to see the strings and all of the bells and the whistles and all of the, the muck and the mire, more accurately spoken. And there, what he saw was corruption and perversion, that it was pervasive in the religious system. And that's why it's not recorded here. Mark is just the, the master of brevity. Um, and said brevity is the soul of wit. Okay, good. Uh, Mark is real short in his stories, but we get a coloring in of these stories in uh, other Gospels. And, and here's what Matthew's Gospel records John saying when he was out in the wilderness baptizing. It says, When he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Hey guys, it's great to see you. Welcome. No, that's not what he said. He said, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? There, there's, there's an account in Ezekiel chapter 8. You can write the text down. We won't turn there. But you'll remember the story, or you should, that the prophet Ezekiel is given this, this divine ability by God to see through the walls into, uh, into the, 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 the in, in, inner workings there in the, in the temple. And he's able actually to, to look at the religious leaders and God keeps letting, you know, now look here, now look here, now look here. And as he looks, every time he looks, he's seeing deeper and deeper like layers of an onion, the depravity and the wickedness that's existing in, in the ministry of these religious leaders. And he's told, I want you to see it and I want you to prophesy against it. And this is what God is doing with John the Baptist. That he, he calls out these evil leaders and he says, you know, you're, you're a brood of vipers. You guys need Jesus. You've lost sight of the fact that your call is to point people to God and you've been making merchandise of people and you've pointed them to everything other than the Lord and you need to stop that and you need to start pointing to Jesus Christ. Listen, guys, there's a reason why the tagline of this church is simply Jesus. And it, it, it's, it's purely and precisely this. That's all I want this ministry to be about. I want it just to be about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's why and we got great teachers here. Pastor Cody can teach the word. Pastor Terry can teach the word. And I invite you know we rotate through, and whatever we're going through, that's what they're going to teach. I don't want to send the message to you that oh wait a minute, you know we're going through the Gospel of Mark, and only Pastor Ted can teach through the Gospel of Mark. Those guys, when they come, well, they can just stay and teach you know, some other book out of the way. No, we're just going to go through the Word because I don't want you looking to Pastor Ted and point. I don't want to be pointing to Pastor Ted. I want to point you to Jesus. And whether it's Terry up here or Cody up here or me up here or whoever is called by God to share the Word, I want our body to say it's not about men. It's not about full, you know, some... Any, anything. It's, it's not about uh, philosophy. It's not about some, you know, psycho, psychological stuff. It's not about, you know, the seven principles to get you to, to be this. It's not even, it's not about seven steps. It's not 12 steps. It's Jesus, guys. It's Jesus Christ. And in your life, <laughs> my hope, my prayer, my, my exhortation to you, I will hunt you down 
that it just needs to be about Jesus, whatever you're going through. I mean, we look to so many things to give us joy, to give us happiness, to deliver us in life. And it's not about any of that stuff. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these things will be added unto you as well. That's what Jesus said. Listen to this. Jesus said this. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said, this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's your Savior. That's your Messiah. That's who I want to point you guys to. That's who you need to look to. That's who you need to love, who you need to trust, and who you need to cry out to for every care, every concern, every joy, every failure, every success. It's Jesus. It's always Jesus, and it's always been Jesus. We're going to conclude with this in verse 9. And if I can, I'm just going to read the first half of verse 9. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came. Listen. Bet the farm, go all in, put, you know, just bet it all. Jesus said who he was. Jesus did what he said. The Bible is true. We start the gospel of Mark off and in, in, in there it says verse two, as it is written. Now, and you know, I told a friend I was teaching through Mark. He's like, you could preach on the first four words of, of verse two for, for a week. As it is written, man, and and what God has said in his word has come to pass. You can take it to the bank. You can trust in him. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. And as we close in prayer today, my, my hope for you is that no matter what has happened in your life, no matter where you're at in your life, that we're going to make it only and always about Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we thank you so much that you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten son. That whomsoever would believe in you would not perish but have everlasting life. And, and Lord, we, we just want it always to be about you, Jesus. We don't want to have a form of godliness and deny the power therein. We don't want to, to say one thing and do another. And we don't want to look to anything other that, than, than Jesus. Lord, you alone are, are he who has the words of eternal life. That's what Peter said to you. Said, you, you talk to the disciples and that's the, you, the hard saying, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And people began to walk away from you. And you, you asked your disciples, are you going to go too? And Lord, they gave you the answer that we give you now. Where else can we go? Lord Jesus, there's nowhere else we can go. And there's nowhere else we want to go. And Lord, we pray just even as much as that is the desire of our heart, we know that we are sinful men and women. And we know that our tendency is to forget. And so, Lord, we pray that we would never forget you. And indeed, Lord, that's why you have, have instituted that we should partake of communion. You said, as often as you, as you eat this bread and drink this cup, that we proclaim your death until you come. And you said, do this in remembrance of me. And Lord, today we want to remember you yet again. We want to say, Lord, that you are are our Lord. You are our Savior. You are our hope. You are our strength. You are our our shield and our strong tower, our ever-present help in time of trouble. And Lord Jesus, you are what we always want our lives to be about. And as we continue in prayer, I would be remiss if I did not give you an opportunity now as we're praying. 
If you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior, that he stands right now at the door of your heart and he knocks. And, and he can be your Lord and Savior today just simply by you believing that he is who he says he is and that you are who the Bible says you are. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. To sin means to miss the mark. And the Bible says that we've all missed the mark of God's perfection. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the, the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. That if you believe in your heart that Jesus is the Christ, that you confess with your mouth that God has raised him from the dead, that you can be saved. And I invite you, I implore you, I beg you by the mercies of God, if you've not done that, pray this prayer in your heart right now. Jesus, I confess I'm a sinner. And I believe that you're the Savior. And I ask you to come in and to be my Lord and Savior and to take away my sins and to help me walk in, in newness of life. Help me, Lord, to have change uh, and to, to be somebody, Lord, who, who is transformed, who's made new. Be my Lord and Savior, I pray, Father. And Father, for, for all of us who have trusted you as our Lord and Savior, as we partake of communion today, Lord, we just pray that you would reaffirm and, and reignite that passion with us, that we would follow you all the days of our life. Lord, you said as often as we eat this bread, we proclaim your death. And as often as we drink this juice, we, we, we proclaim your death. Lord, that the bread is symbolic of your body broken for us and the juice is symbolic of your blood shed for us. And you said that we're to do this in remembrance of you and you said we're not to partake in an unworthy manner. That we have to examine our hearts as we do so. And we have to use this as a time to keep a very short account with you so we can walk in obedience with you. And so Lord, we ask that you would help us to do that today by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.